Support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Oshman family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Oshman family JCC is an incubator for new expressions of Jewish identity. It creates innovative Jewish learning, celebrations, and arts programs that inspire personal connections to people and ideas from across the Jewish world. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 230, Never Again Action. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rothberg. And today we are beginning what's going to be a long series exploring topics of social justice and Jews of color, in part because a lot of the activists and folks that we're wanting to talk to are actively involved in protest movements, and it's hard to get everything organized in exactly the timeline that we want. This might be slightly scattered, but we think it will all hold together in the end, as many of our series do. And we'll tie those up uh, towards the end with conversations between the two of us. But today we are thrilled to welcome two activists that we have known well and who have been on this podcast before, who are involved in an organization called Never Again Action, which is a movement of thousands of Jews and allies fighting to end the United States' cruel immigration policies. Never Again Action takes action that directly targets the system, demonstrates the stakes to the public, and inspires people to join. It's committed to nonviolent action, and as they say, its role is to expose and disrupt the daily violence of the system, not add violence that would weaken our authority and endanger allies. Never Again Action was in the news recently a number of times, but one time in particular when there was an action outside of a detention facility in Rhode Island and one of the workers there drove a car into the protesters. Our guest, Tal Frieden, was there at that protest. Tal is an activist who lives in Providence, Rhode Island. They helped to spearhead Never Again Action Rhode Island, which has worked in partnership with an organization called Amor, which will be talked about in the podcast, Alliance to Mobilize Our Resistance, to seek statewide bans on both private prisons and collaboration with ICE. Tal was named to the Forward Newspaper's Forward 50 in 2019, an annual feature that spotlights 50 of the most influential Jews in each calendar year. I should note that Tal was also on an episode of Judaism Unbound, where we talked about another organization that they're involved in, Judaism on Our Own Terms, which is a collective organization of the groups at various college campuses that are doing Jewish life activities outside of the zone of the established institutions on campus. Our second guest is Becca Lubo. She recently did a special episode of Judaism Unbound because she is our fellow this year. She's a fellow at Judaism Unbound through a partnership with New Voices magazine. Becca produced and hosted the bonus episode of Judaism Unbound called Who's Judaism that was released not too long ago. And as an activist, she works with organizations like If Not Now and Never Again Action. Tal and Becca, we are thrilled to welcome you back to Judaism Unbound to talk about this important activist work you're doing. So welcome to Judaism Unbound. It's so great to have you both back on again. Thanks so much for having us. It's great to be uh, in conversation with you all. Well, Tal, I'd love to start with you because I guess you're starting to be our our regular guest when we're looking at some kind of uh, some kind of activity that people have done in the past, but the the young folks these days are doing it different. 
So uh, last time we were talking about Judaism on our own terms and how you're doing Jewish life differently on campus. And now you've graduated from college. So we're moving on to social justice. And you were involved in the early days of Never Again Action. And I'd love if you could just describe a little bit about how it came to to start its work. Yeah, so the origin story of Never Again Action is that Serena Adlerstein, who was an organizer for Cosecha, uh, which is an immigrant rights movement um, led by directly impacted folks and undocumented folks, put out a Facebook post that was like, I'm really pissed about how immigration is being discussed in this country. It was right when Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said that the detention camps in this country are concentration camps. And the national media was in an uproar about debating the rhetoric of whether these camps should or could be classified as concentration camps instead of discussing the horrendous conditions uh, that immigrants still to this day are being subjected to in uh, concentration camps in this country. And that Facebook post that Serena Adlerstein posted um, led to a Google form, which led to other people posting it which led to um, me being on a Zoom call with some other organizers talking about a week of action across the country, starting with the first action in Elizabeth, New Jersey, and followed by actions in Philadelphia, Providence, the Bay Area, Boston. And following that week of action, there were over 40 or 50 actions in the following month across the country led by Jews, immigrants, and allies, and campaigns across the country to close the concentration camps and to abolish ICE. And Becca, how did you get involved in this work? So when Serena put out that call, as Jews, you know, we've seen this before, I'm angry, we should be storming these camps. A friend of mine, Brandon Mond, who was an organizer I knew through, if not now, a different Jewish activist movement, commented, I'm in, but actually. And I, like a day or two later, um, got a call from him. And we, we hopped on a Zoom call with some people that night. And I remember at first we were talking about one action. Like it was a, a tiny group of people came together and were like, let's, let's do one action just to shift the narrative about like, this should be a debate about the semantics of the word concentration camp um, and should actually be a moment when we talk about what you do if there's a concentration camp in your country. As a Jew whose family may or may not have history with that pain, there is a concentration camp in your country right at this moment. What do you want to be doing? And the answer was something, you know. Um, and I felt like we, we put out a Google form and um, we were expecting a few dozen people to maybe be down for an action. And there were thousands of people in that form immediately. And I think a lot of people had the sense I felt, which was, oh, thank God there's something to do. Um, because I'd been wanting to do something yep. for so long and just felt completely powerless and like, well, there's, I'm one person, there's nothing I can do. And it turns out a lot of people felt that way and they just needed someone to point and be like, run in that direction. And once we all kind of found each other and realized that everyone felt that way, we we're like, okay, we can dream bigger. And 
like as the rest of that summer showed, clearly there was so much energy from our community to do something. And we, we never set out to like make an organization. Initially it was, we're going to have one action. And then it was, we're going to have one week of action where we try to get it to happen in a few other places. And then it was, oh, like new actions kept popping up. You know, we'd say, we're going to go for two more weeks and then we'll be done. And then there'd be more actions the next week that were in the process of being planned because new cities wanted to get involved and things really took off on a local level in a lot of places. And so we kept saying, let's figure out how we're going to like end it. And then more things kept happening. Um, And eventually we realized through conversations with um, partners in the immigrant justice movement and Cosecha that actually we, we shouldn't shut things down. Um, I mean, cause such a organizer said to us, it's great that you're here and showing up, but don't disappear tomorrow. We need people to fight with us for the long haul. And we need these new people who've been activated to stay activated because concentration camps still exist. And so we really like fought turning never again into a more permanent thing until it became like really clear that it needed to stick around. So there's so many pieces of what both of you just brought up that I think are really, really crucial for us. Um, The first I want to mention is what each of you described in different ways as like, there was this sense that we had to do something. And the we here, I, I don't know how to define because there was no institution. There was no, I mean, you both, you talked about Tal, how the story began with a person's name and their Facebook post, Serena Adlerstein and her Facebook post. And then the, like within what, a week or a couple weeks, there was like a, a movement. I'm like, there, there was at least an action and it was being discussed in publications that like a lot happened very quickly. And I want to reflect on how somebody could hear that is just, oh, like there was a snap of the fingers and this arose. But I actually think that what that reflects is that there's been for many years um, sort of the growth of a move. I would describe it as a movement. Um, we could debate what that means. But there's been the growth of a huge cohort of roughly young-ish or young Jews. Um, and so I want to talk about like what was already like, how did it happen that one person created a Facebook post and then within a week or two, there were all these people there? Like, what is behind that? Um, to some extent, I think that it's, it's hard to talk about this without also talking about other Jewish activist movements, like if not now, which in many ways was some of the, the core people power at first. I don't know whether that's still true to the same extent, but am I right to call it a movement? Is it something else? Like, how do we talk about this cohort of, of people largely in their 20s and maybe 30s who seem to be deeply called in their hearts to these kinds of movements? Some of them are also called to, you know, other kinds of Jewish institutional things. But for some of them, this is like their core Jewish act. I think we owe a lot of that to the work that other movements have done for years and years and years to build the muscle and communities that allowed something like this to take shape so quickly. Cosecha has been doing this work for a long time and had a lot of wisdom um, that they could share with us about what what we need right now. Um, what really would make an impact and um, and 
you know, gave Serena the tools and network to find other Jewish activists, if not now, um, has, I know a lot of the people, not everyone, but a lot of the people who came together for Never Again, like already knew each other and had been an activist community through, if not now, for a long time. I also think those movements shaped what it was we all imagined doing when we, when we got on that call, because we talked about hosting actions. I don't know if listeners will all know exactly what actions means. Um, And I've seen Jewish institutions that are a little more established, maybe doing a quote action. And it's essentially a rally where people gather somewhere and there's speakers and they listen to the speakers and then everyone goes home. And never again came out of an activist tradition um, that said, whatever we do needs to really have a material impact. We need to demonstrate risk and sacrifice to show people that this matters. And if you say there's concentration camps and your response is to have a speech, I don't think that emotional weight is there. Like we need to demonstrate this is a moment when thousands of people can't do anything except for like physically stand in the way of what's happening, which is why actions look like, you know, blocking entrances to a detention center or shutting down government meetings, talking about what was happening, you know, private prisons and people often got arrested at these actions because we really felt like these need to have a, they, they can't just be like a performance. They need to also have some sort of more of a tangible purpose. And though if never again is, has joined kind of this group of activist movements in Jewish spaces, it's, it's not the first, there's a long tradition of Jewish activism. It's not going to be the last I'm sure. I think Becca said it really well. And I would also just say that in Providence, I'm by far the youngest person who's on our leadership team. And our leadership team is mostly people who are not a millennial or Gen Z. And one of the things that stands out to me in that way that teaches us that, you know, this work has been building for decades is last August, about a year ago, at a Never Again Action in Central Falls, Rhode Island, a prison guard drove his truck into a crowd of protesters and a dozen prison guards followed and dispersed pepper spray indiscriminately into a crowd of protesters. And this has become uh, a common occurrence in the last year. We've seen car rammings by the NYPD and by individuals. And I also want to say that personally, today I'm really thinking about Summer Taylor and their family. Summer Taylor was a protester in Washington who was killed by a car attack this week. Um, One thing that moment taught me is that the violence of this system is not new and the resistance to the system is not new. One woman who was sent to the hospital that night is in her 70s and she was pepper sprayed so severely she had to be taken to the hospital. And the next day when I called to check in on her and and just talk about what had happened, she said, you know, I was at Berkeley in 1968. I was there and it wasn't as bad as what I'm seeing now, but it hasn't changed. And 
it's a reminder that we've been fighting these systems for as long as any of us can remember, and they, they're still here, and we, the work keeps going. Yeah, I just want to lift up that Never Again is truly an intergenerational movement. Um, there are very young people taking action for the first time and discovering a Jewish voice, and there are people who have been part of these movements for a long time um, and bring um, wisdom and uh, are a real source of strength. Um, at the DC action we had in the middle of this summer, um, the first person to arrive um, and sit down in the building and declare himself um, ready to be arrested if necessary was Rabbi Arthur Waskow, who's in his 80s. Everyone was sweltering and we were there for hours and hours and hours and he was the last one to leave. And I want to make sure that the role of our elders in these movements um, isn't missed. I am a huge follower of Arthur Wasco. I love that he got a shout out here for, um, we'll, we'll link in the show notes to his episode in the past on Judaism Unbound. Um, okay. I want to hone in on a couple things that just arose. One being that, um, Becca, you used the word sacrifice and on a show about Judaism and, you know, to some extent religion, although Dan and I would talk for hours about what religion means. Um, I think it's important to, to name that word sacrifice because when you think about it in an activist context, um, where sacrifice connotes like risk in the way that you talked about, um, showing up and being willing to put yourself on the line for a cause. I think it's easy for us to sort of segment that kind of sacrifice off from the kind of sacrifice we read about in like the Torah where sacrifice connotes like sacrificial offerings of animals often. There's other kinds of sacrificial offerings with grain and whatever, but like two very different connotations. But I actually want to look at the ways they're similar and the ways in which what you, the two of you are describing and how you need to be, you need to show up and be willing to put, I mean, in some cases, your body, like Tao was talking about, in other cases, at the very least, your heart and your mind on the line in order to demonstrate to people who might not understand the stakes of the moment that they really are that high. Um, it's, it's, it's important to be able to do that. But, um, I, I'm thinking about how, like, that's, that's what these ancient sacrifices seem to have been too, right? Like, the, the whole point was you were supposed to feel a sense of personal loss and, like, you gave up a lot of yourself. Like, you don't just, choose some shoddy looking ram to give like you're supposed to give an unblemished one from your flock like that you theoretically probably have a relationship to um and and then you you i mean once again i'm not i'm a vegetarian i'm not here to like say we should all be sacrificing animals to god but like the the strategy there is okay it, for whatever set of reasons giving that up demonstrates a commitment to a greater cause the greater cause being god devotion in this case that's important to say. And so I'd love to hear from the two of you why, like, cause, cause a major difference between the work of, say, a never again action and other wonderful organizations with different strategies of activism, I think is that risk, is that strategy of civil disobedience, of being arrested, of, of facing what we faced in Central Falls, Rhode Island that night with, with somebody driving their car. Like, like, what is, what is it to sacrifice? One of the reasons I think Never Again has been powerful is, for the most part, Jewish institutions were 
criticizing the detention centers or saying that immigrant rights are important to Jews and not not saying it too loudly or saying it in a very moderated way that didn't reflect the way most Jews I knew felt, which was sickened and horrified and enraged and ready to do whatever it took to stop what was happening. The role of risk and sacrifice and helping Jews find a new way of expressing um, that, that level of commitment to a more humane country and to human dignity for immigrants and all people gave people the tools to take action in a way that is more disruptive and prevents business as usual from happening. And as a result, does require more risk and sacrifice. And I think it's important also to mention that we um, white Jews have a lot of privilege. Getting arrested at an action does not have the same risks for me that it would for an undocumented person. And for white Jews, there's a lower risk of violence than there is for people of color at actions and people of color are showing up anyway. And so it's important for us to be there so that we can just stand with them. Um, For me, taking action in this way makes me feel more deeply connected to Jewish practice and values and history than almost anything I do. And I do observe holidays and, and other Jewish traditions that aren't activist traditions, but showing up to fight for justice through a Jewish lens explicitly because that's what being Jewish demands of me feels powerful and sacred in a way that I would imagine is comparable to ancient Jewish practices. So those of us who are white in this country do not experience the same level of risk when it comes to these actions that that Black folks, Indigenous folks, undocumented folks are seeing now uh, across the country as people rise up for Black lives and against the police and police violence. So I would personally feel like the framework of sacrifice is maybe brings us too close to like a savior mentality that like we are the ones who are doing all of the sacrificing for others or for ourselves or whatever. And one thing I also hear a lot is like, we need to be doing the work. Like this is, there's work that we need to do. And I think that like, it is hard work. It takes a lot of time to put together things like this. It takes a lot of dedication and a lot of communication and it's difficult. But I also think work isn't the only model to think about spending time on something. And as Becca said, we're building the world that we want to see as we reject the world that exists right now. And I think of an action, again, in Central Falls, Rhode Island, where the board of this private prison was discussing a plan to sell the prison to another private prison company and to cement their agreement with ICE to detain at least 650 people in this facility from ICE. And a group of mostly white Jews with 
uh, our allies at Amor, which is a movement led by undocumented folks, went into this public meeting and started singing for like an hour and a half and shut down the meeting because we were leading Shabbat prayers. It was, the meeting was Friday at 6 p.m. We came in with a bottle of grape juice and a couple of challahs and we had Shabbat in this private prison. They were my candlesticks that we brought, by the Next way. Candlesticks were there. And that example to me is all about how as we dismantle prisons, police, ICE, anti-black racism and settler colonization in this country, we're also building a really beautiful world. And it's not just sacrifice or work, it's also collective joy and liberation. That's an amazing story. That That's actually what I've been dreaming of and talking about. I think since we started the podcast, this, this uh, dream that somehow services would take place at a place of action, uh, you know, whether that means a, a protest type of action or a homeless shelter or, you know, a soup kitchen or whatever it might be, but that the service would not be disconnected from the action, but actually if there was going to be a service at all, which I've had my questions about, you know, but that it would be integrated into uh, into acting. And I, I think that's really exciting to hear something like that. It, it actually makes me think about, Lex was uh, texting me in the background that earlier when we were talking that what you were describing to some extent was like a Jewish movement, but not a denomination. You know, we think of a movement as like, you know, what denomination are you? But no, but this is a movement. And I and the way that you were talking about the intergenerational dimension of it and the way in which, you know, the older folks are bringing wisdom and experience and the younger folks may be bringing energy and passion or whatever that is, you know, and, and the idea that that you are starting to describe a sort of a Jewish movement that is much more healthy than than any other existing Jewish movement in the way that we usually talk about it. So it's exciting to me to imagine where this where this plays out and and maybe we can talk some about that. I mean, I also want to underscore what you've been saying about uh, just talking about this, the substance that that you've been talking about, even the the concept of sacrifice. And and I really think that the concept of sacrifice is worth you know maybe Lex, you and I should take it next time you know we talk or something. You know, I think it's really kind of um, fascinating in part because the rabbis. In the after the destruction of the Second Temple, kind of rebuilt Judaism around prayer, but in their mind, prayer was taking the place of the sacrifices. You know, so it's interesting to think about you know sacrifice taking the place of the sacrifices, and what kind of sacrifice are we talking about? Uh, maybe a different kind, but I think to underscore what Lex was saying that uh, in the Bible, what you were sacrificing was something really valuable. And you're right to say that maybe we're we have privilege, and it's it's less. Uh, there's less to lose maybe than than other people might have, but nevertheless, it's it's something to lose. I'm curious about a, another sort of language that you're using, and and I know that you've I'm sure been asked this question a million times. I wanna I wanna get into it deeply though, which is the question of the name of the organization Never Again, the the idea of the Holocaust imagery, and um, the organization Bend the Ark. I think pretty close to when Trump was elected. They started also using this language, right? We've seen this before. And we talked to them back then about using that that language. And, um, you know, and obviously there is pushback from from various elements within the Jewish community that say, well, we shouldn't be comparing anything to the Holocaust. The Holocaust was sui generis. The Holocaust was the worst thing that ever happened to anybody. And, you know, how dare you use an analogy to the Holocaust? Uh, obviously, we don't think that. And you don't think that. 
I kind of feel like there's some power. I think I've said versions of this before. I think there's some power in, as a Jew, inviting others to use the Holocaust. And, and I've said that before. It's like, please use the Holocaust, you know, meaning like, what's the point of having uh, experienced something like that? And then just saying nobody can, we can never, we can never derive anything from it. We can never use it in, in some way. But I'd love to hear in your voice, how do you talk about the usage of that language and that analogy and, and the power and also the responsibility of using it? I think you're right that if we are never allowed to apply lessons from the Holocaust or other tragedies in our history to the present, we, we take away their meaning. Um, I would want the tragedies and pain that our people have gone through to motivate us to prevent future tragedies. And I also want to say that um, for Ashkenazi Jews, that's the Holocaust. Um, there are other tragedies that Jews throughout our history and experiences of oppression um, that we can draw from. And never again, action, the name came from anger about this semantic debate that was happening, whether or not it was okay to say never again in the sense of no more concentration camps for any people ever. And I, I had an interesting conversation with a friend this week actually about this. She is Jewish and also is part of ACT UP which is an organization that was created during the height of the AIDS epidemic. And she was talking about how she was really frustrated because ACT UP was drawing from their history with the AIDS crisis as they talked about the pandemic we're currently facing and coronavirus. And people were saying, that's inappropriate. How can you make that comparison? And she felt like, we are ACT UP. If anyone has the right, to make that comparison, it's us. And I feel the same way. Like, I am a descendant of Holocaust victims. We are Jews. If anyone has the right to say this is a concentration camp um, and never again means that this cannot happen, it's us. Institutional Jewish organizations sometimes try to claim that mantle and declare themselves the arbiter of what you can and can't say about Jews or Jewishness or our history. And this movement in some ways got started as, an, as a response and just average Jewish people who may or may not be involved with institutional Jewish life saying, no, actually that's ours too. And no one else gets to speak over us. And our history means something to us and and has a set of demands for the way we act right now. Echoes of your beautiful bonus episode there about how Judaism belongs to all of us. Um, I, I love that you brought up ACT UP. Um, I, I want to talk a little more about that beautiful moment at the meeting in Central Falls with the singing and the Shabbat candlesticks and the and the wine in, I mean, it was a gym. It was, it was like a, it was like a, a gym um, that we were gathered in, where where we disrupted and made our presence felt on Shabbat. Um, I, I want to name it because when I think through my entire mental library of powerful ritual Jewish experiences in my life, in synagogues, outside of synagogues, wherever they've been, 
two moments rise to the top. And one is that evening, that Friday night in that gym. Uh, and people came up to me afterwards who said, like, I've never felt anything really in a Friday night service. And this wasn't like a Friday night service by the book in the way that many people think. But people were coming up to me and saying, like, I, I felt something in a way I haven't felt in a Jewish space before. Um, and I certainly felt that. And then the other moment that rises in my ritual library to the top is when I was in D.C. at an If Not Now action outside of the APAC conference, davening a service there. I, I think somehow we, we still can't get over this hurdle where we see those kinds of services, those, th- those kinds of rituals as like, ah, that's the alt Judaism. That's like the Judaism you do every once in a while on the side, but mostly you go to a synagogue or like whatever traditional kind of Jewish institution. And like, I feel as if, you know, and by the way, in Providence, one beautiful thing of all this is that like, actually the local synagogues and federation, like they were actually, and are um, deeply involved in, in many of these actions and showed up. It wasn't just like, it, it was a mixture of people with all sorts of different connections or lack thereof to the Jewish institutions in town that were all coming together, forming a coalition in partnership with undocumented people, in partnership with other allies in the community. Like it was a really spectacular thing there. But what I, what I want to ask is like, what happens to people, maybe to, to you, but what's the theory behind what's happening to people that are at these actions? And like, why do they happen Jewishly? Like you could do all of these same things. We could do all of these same things, but without Shabbat candlesticks, without grape juice, without like without Hebrew songs. We could do a lot of the same stuff, but um, there's a conscious choice to do so through a Jewish lens. Which I get. Which we the the Holocaust analogy piece and the the ways on immigration that it ties together are, are very clear. But why in general would one do justice work through a Jewish lens as opposed to just you know being a part of broader work? I mean, I know both of you do that. Too, not just the Jewish lens, but um, like, why do those moments seem to affect people so deeply in a way that is not just touching their like activist muscles, but their Jewish muscles as well? And maybe the real question is, how do we transcend that idea that sort of the Jewish happens at the synagogue? You would leave, uh, you would leave on Friday at that. You would leave that action at six thirty on Friday to go to your sort of real service. As opposed to realizing, oh, this is my service this week, you know? I would say that the reason actions like the one, this board meeting that we effectively canceled, right? They canceled that board meeting because we were singing Shabbat prayers. The reason those resonate so much for me is sort of contained in one of the chants or songs that Never Again Action uh, uses frequently, which is we've got ancestors at our back and we've got generations forward. What I get from that chant and from these actions is that we have all of the tools at our disposal to see the world that we want to see, right? If it's Friday at 6 p.m., we know what to do, right? And we also know that we're doing it for generations forward. And I think that also ties into the question of bringing up the Holocaust. We know what genocide can look like. We also know that genocide happened before the Holocaust and it's happened since. And we need to do everything we can to make sure that what's going on right now doesn't get to the point of genocide. 
I have a friend who worked in conflict resolution and transformation in Rwanda. And when she was in Rwanda, she spoke about the Holocaust and her family's experience with the Holocaust. And to the, the children she was working with, there was so much power and hope in realizing that they were not the only people who had ever seen genocide. And realizing that this is an experience that we can all learn from and fight together. To people who have experiences with genocide, learning that this is a historical phenomenon that can repeat itself and has happened before is valuable in the sense that it, it allows us to be agents in history and understand ourselves as capable of preventing it from happening again, which is, I think, what the power in, ne in Never Again action is. It allows us to be agents of history, knowing what we know about genocide and knowing what we wish Germans in Germany had done a couple of generations ago. You know, Lex and I sometimes debate about what, what can we say that's definitive about Judaism, if anything, you know, when we're backward looking. You know, can we say that Judaism does X, you know, or can we just say that one Judaism, one version of Judaism has done X or most versions of Judaism have done X? I, I almost feel like to the extent that we can say anything about Judaism, one of the things that we can say is that definitional to Judaism is that we imagine that our past suffering has present and future meaning right that it and and maybe some sometimes we could debate does that mean that uh, we should protect ourselves versus that we should protect others we can debate about that but the idea that something terrible happens to us and we kind of shouldn't talk too much about it or it's kind of you know we hold it tight we don't we don't sort of publicize i mean that's like it feels to me like the opposite of a jewish way to 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 deal with something now maybe we say you know something about the holocaust it's too soon you know the exodus from egypt i mean that was a long time ago we can talk about that no it doesn't involve somebody's current uh, family, you know, memories or something. But I, I don't know. It's always felt to me kind of false to the way that Judaism works, that we wouldn't take the Holocaust and actually turn it into a driving force for doing something. And, you know, for those of us who are inclined to read it as like you're saying that that it, it becomes potentially a, a, a galvanizing force for us to help others and make sure nobody else suffers this way ever again, it sort of seems like we have a sacred duty to do that. And, you know, it brings me back to the point of sacrifice. It's like, I think what when we kind of um, uh, hold Germans to account, and I don't mean the Germans who, who perpetrated the Holocaust, I mean the everyday Germans, right? What we're imagining that they ought to have done that they didn't do was somehow sacrifice, right? Was somehow risk their own safety in order to protect us. And it feels like when we are in a position analogous to that, when we have the opportunity to do that, even if one were to say that what might happen to the person or to that community of people is not as bad as what happened to the Jews in the Holocaust, I'm not saying that that's the case, but even if you said that that was the case, nevertheless, what we should derive from our own experience is that we should act the way that we would have wished that others would act toward us. I mean, it seems sort of elemental, but I guess that for me that makes me want to hear more about how the two of you think about Judaism and what the point of it is and, and how, how what your utopian version of a future Judaism might be. And I'm, and I'm curious if you could sort of talk a little bit about for you, 
what a Judaism would feel like to you that didn't include this kind of action? You know, I mean, I, I guess I'm asking you to reflect on the Judaism that you've inherited to some extent, uh, or that you were might have been expected by the community around you to participate in. Tal, I think this connects to some extent uh, to our our previous conversation about what happens on campus with Jewish life, versus the the Judaism that in some way you are trying to construct or reconstruct that would have more power for you and and perhaps for for others like you. I mean, if we're talking about our like vision for a dream world and a dream Jewish community, to me, that's like definitely inherently tied to my politics and like what I want the world to look like. So we're talking like no prisons, no police, no ice. Then we can get to the uh, other more spiritual questions. But I think it's related because it also means a community that is invested in um, healing, that's invested in transformative justice and addressing interpersonal harm in a way that uh, is respectful to survivors and all members of the community. It means uh, a community that's actively invested in leveraging our resources, our privileges to help our society. It means a community that is invested in lifting up parts of the Jewish community, like the Sephardic or Mizrahi traditions that are often left out in the U.S. It means lifting up Black and Indigenous Jews. It means a lot of singing to me. It means <laughs> investing in relationships and not in buildings or what we might think of as institutions. Yeah, I'm curious what Becca will say, too. To me, Judaism and activism feel like two sides of the same coin in that they are a way for me to find whatever the opposite of nihilism is. Um, they're a way <laughs> for me to find some sort of meaning in my life. They help me connect to something outside of myself and bigger than myself. And I find comfort in that, whether that's a place in the struggle for justice that has always been happening and will always be happening in our world um, or a connection to a spirituality higher than myself. They help me process pain. They help me um, find joy. I mean, we haven't talked in some ways about the, the more joyful moments in these actions, but there really have been true moments of joy dancing in the streets outside of detention centers or like watching the live stream of the Rhode Island action and seeing a massive crowd chant in unison, we're canceling this meeting, Shabbat Shalom, and then begin singing Oziv Zimrat Yah. Um, just felt spiritual to me. Um, I, I find in both activism and Judaism a, a sense of connection to a history um, and to a future that I can learn from and have obligations to. Um, and I am not saying that every activist has to have that relationship or every Jew has to have that relationship because it's something very personal. Um, but part of the Jewish identity outside of institutions and organically created by Jewish people in the streets for ourselves 
um, one of the reasons it's exciting to me is because it gives everyone that freedom to find what is meaningful to them and be supported to lean into it and learn from it and be nourished by it in community with other people. I kind of want to come full circle to some of the generational questions that have come up, both the extent to which there are real generational dynamics happening here and the extent to which I love how both of you have questioned them. Tal, when you talked about how you're the youngest one on the core team in Providence um, or in Rhode Island, um, because that takes us all the way back to the first episode of Judaism Unbound. I mean, Dan and I, some of the first things that came out of our mouth were reflecting on, okay, Lex is a millennial, which at the time meant, ooh, Lex, young, new, new Jewish professional or whatever. Not that I like that term, Jewish professional, but, um, at the time we, we talked about, you know, I'm millennial, Dan is Gen X, and we think that there's interesting things that, that will affect our frames of reference, but also we, we questioned on day one, the idea that everything is generational and everything is contextual to when you were born. Like we said, there's a lot of people who feel alienated from Jewish institutions who it, it's not because they're young. I mean, there's plenty of boomers who are alienated from Jewish institutions. There's plenty of people who are in their 70s, 80s beyond who are alienated from Jewish institutions if they literally can't access them because of their abilities and disabilities. There's plenty of people of all ages where um, some of the things we talk about as sort of unique problems of one age in distinction from problems of another age might actually not be the case. But basically, I want to I wanna shoot back to you like, yes, it is the case and it's important that especially locally, um, this work has been intergenerational and the and the piece that the power of that Never Again Paranadier song of uh, uh, ancestors at our back and generations forward, I think holds that as a sacred value, um, that we're, that we're going to be transgenerational. Um, and I think it needs to be said that this rose from largely people who are on the general younger end of the spectrum in terms of who was at that first New Jersey action. And then there was sort of, there was a, there was a way in which and honestly, when I was at that action, I felt like one of the, the older ones at there. I mean, maybe I was wrong. I felt like I was one of the older ones at that action. Um, and I was really energized by the fact that that was the case. So what I, what I'd love to close with is like, what, what specifically do we need to be learning from people who are young, often starting up these incredibly beautiful, powerful, national and international movements, um, what do we specifically need to learn from from people on the younger end of the age spectrum? Um, you know, everybody loves to talk about little things like TikTok and whatever else, but like what's what's bigger than that? And on the other hand, how should we be pushing ourselves to recognize that like this isn't some new moment where we've replaced the wisdom of our elders? Like we, we still need the Arthur Waskows in our room desperately. I see people on both ends of the age spectrum. So our youngest people and leaders and our oldest people and leaders sometimes discounted or not taken seriously as real leadership. In both cases, I think it's wrong and really does a disservice to our community because there's so much wisdom and leadership there. And so 
in terms of how to engage with young people, I'd say engage with them as leaders first and as activists and as young people second, because they are leaders in their own right. The youth movements that are transforming our world, really, um, I, I feel should have con- conclusively demonstrated that at this point. Creating a space where everyone is invited in and respected and listened to invites that intergenerational magic. I think the conversation around Gen Z activism or Gen Z's politics, I don't know, I kind of, I don't really like that conversation because the Black Panthers were boomers and the Communist Party was bigger in the 60s than it is now. And radical politics changes over time. And maybe it's easier to find these things with the internet now, maybe. But often when we talk about like Gen Z being inspiring, which they absolutely are, it's a way to ignore the work that's been happening or absolve ourselves from being part of the work that's ongoing. And someone who's 18, someone who's 35, someone who's 70, someone who's 44, all of us have a job to play in building a better world. And it behooves us to ignore the talking points that like Gen Z will fix the world once they come in power because all of us have power and all of us have a role to play in this struggle. And it's just about investing in and supporting leaders as they come up at any stage of their life. Thank you both so much for joining us. This has been a fantastic conversation and uh, we're always thrilled to learn from both of you. Thank you so much. So awesome to be in conversation with you, Becca. And thank you, Lex and Dan, for having us. And thank you, of course, to all of you out there listening. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. And we're also going to really, um, we're going to really plug the past appearances of Tal and Becca on Judaism Unbound. So Tal was on our episode called Judaism on Our Own Terms. Becca had a beautiful bonus episode about who Judaism belongs to. I'll listen to it to, to learn more about what that phrasing might mean. Um, and Becca is also our our 2020 year-long New Voices Judaism Unbound fellow and is just doing amazing work. Stay tuned for more when Elul arises in not too long, the month of Elul, um, in which Becca is creating some really wonderful stuff. And uh, a, a big thank you to all of you out there for listening into their voices once more. Um, we're going to close out our episode in the same way that we always do by encouraging you to be in touch with us. And there are a wide variety of ways for you to do that. First, you can head to our Facebook pages, Judaism Unbound or Jewish Live. Second, you can go to our websites, JudaismUnbound.com or JewishLive.org. Third, you can go to our Twitter feed, which is just at Judaism Unbound. And last but not least, you can always email us at Dan at JudaismUnbound.com or Lex at JudaismUnbound.com. The last request we'd like to make is that we deeply appreciate any amount of donation you can send our way, which you can do at judaismunbound.com slash donate. We also encourage you to support Never Again Action, uh, which you can do via their website. And just thank you all so much for listening. With that, this has been Judaism Unbound.